Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer Softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Welcome, 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 welcome. My name is Gabrielle Ha-Cohen, and I am here today with my co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, and I feel that God is calling me to be a podcast host. You do? You feel that God's calling you to be a podcast host? God is, is calling me, and I'm going to surrender to God's call to be a podcast host. Would you say that he put it on your heart? Yes, God put it on my heart. I think that it is excellent that you have been called to be a podcast host because that is what we are doing right now. We are hosting this podcast right now about Sadie Carpenter's life in the independent fundamental Baptist cult. We seek to tell Sadie's amazing story as well as to educate and to inform our listeners about this cult, other cults, and the danger that these types of groups present to society as a whole. We support freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. And today we're going to be digging into something that's a part of my story that we've never told, 
but it is a term that we've mentioned many times. Many times. Yeah. Oh, I want to let uh, any former IFB listeners know uh, I'm going to be kind of quoting off a lot of IFB guilt tripping type things today. So just a heads up, um, it, it's a positive outcome in the end, but you may hear me kind of spouting a lot of IFB rhetoric. I feel like today's topic is another key to understanding the IFB movement as a whole. Uh, we're even going to get into a couple like scientific terms. Scientific terms? Yes. Science does not belong on an IFB podcast because the IFB are allergic to science. That may be true, but yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that science has some uh, very helpful terms like mass hysteria that can be extremely useful when describing certain types of group religious experiences. So like mass hysteria, you're talking about like believer fever? Yes, but also <laughs> in the sense of a shared delusion. Um, so more like the Salem witch trials. Oh, the idea okay. is like people sharing a hallucination or a false belief simply because of their involvement in a crowd that believes that false belief. So like the emperor's new clothes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, then. That's very interesting. But before we get into that, I would just like to say that the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast. We work hard to bring you episodes every week. And if you wish to support us, you can join our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. If you don't want to support us financially or you just can't swing it in these exceedingly tight times, you can share our podcast with your family, your friends, your coworkers, your mortal enemies, and just generally help us grow our audience. So if you like our show and you want to engage in a discussion with other fans, you can go to our Facebook group, which is called Eden Exodus. So you go to facebook.com slash Eden Exodus and you can join us there. But Sadie, yes. you know, of course, yeah, that rock and roll is in my blood. Rock and roll is in my heart. Rock and roll is in my soul. Yes, that's why you're possessed by the devil. I am possessed by mm -hmm. the devil. Sadly, I have been possessed by the devil through the ear gate from a very young age because I knew when I was very young that I wanted to pursue music as a career. I wanted to perform. I wanted the stage. I wanted the audience. But had I maybe not been Jewish, had I maybe been raised in the IFB, such beautiful things that I have experienced would sadly not be possible. So... Had I been raised IFB, what do you think my life would look like right now if I were not a rock star with incredible fashion sense? What would my career options be? Okay, so we're assuming that for this scenario, you were all in, you were sold out, you really wanted to do the whole IFB experience. Yes, I have drank Pastor Jack's Texas style poison and I am ready to go. <laughs> okay, so in this case, uh, so we're going to assume that at some point you were either called to preach or called to be a missionary. And at this point, you're in your late 20s, both of us are, so you would have already graduated from Hiles Anderson or another IFB approved college. You would be married by this point, uh, and then you would either be working as a missionary or as a pastor or as an assistant pastor at a church. Okay, so of these three things... Which one do you think is the most likely knowing me? So I think with your voice, if you had gone to HAC, 
you would have most likely gone on tour because one thing they you have an amazing range and one thing that they really really value is a great range so they would get me in the tour group right away that's what i'm thinking so i'm thinking you go to hiles anderson you get on tour and tour is a great way to build connections around the country because you visited all these churches right and all of these pastors around the country know like oh yeah there's that dude who has the amazing voice so as soon as you graduate Hiles Anderson, you're going to be offered a job as an assistant pastor at one of these better known IFB churches because, okay. because they want you to like, they're going to hire you to like to do music and like, because of your vocal talent. Okay. So, so I would be like the assistant pastor slash music director at a fairly well-to-do IFB church. That's what yeah. my life would look like right now if I'm 27. So, yeah, so your career path would be to work there for like five to ten years and then probably put out some CDs, probably maybe even sing in like a fundy famous singing group. And then with the recognition that you get from that, eventually like maybe an older pastor with an established church would retire and you'd be able to get hired as the pastor at that church. Um, you could also start a church yourself, but that's a ton of work. And knowing you, I feel like you would get headhunted by a pastor who wanted an assistant pastor. And I also feel like you'd be happy to be an assistant pastor and do a lot of music and not have to be the guy in charge for a while. And then eventually I would get my own church, like my own flock. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I make a name for myself. Right. I would think that that like when you were called to preach, you were called to be a pastor. And that's the goal that you had in mind from the beginning. But that you wouldn't mind sitting around being an assistant pastor for like 10 years or whatever before you okay get there. so this is a there's a term that you just used that i want to dig into and the term is being quote unquote called to preach what exactly does it mean to be called to preach being called to preach is something that i'm sure we've mentioned many times before um like in the hiles episode i'm sure i said something about oh he was called to preach as a teenager yeah but I, I, I want to get into the etymology of the term for a minute, because the way that it's worded, it's not, I have decided that I want to be a preacher. It is, God decided that I should be a preacher, and therefore, I am going to do that. Right. And that's, that's, um, that is on purpose. I think it's time for us to talk about exactly how someone would know what, that, what it was that God was calling them to do. With enough confidence to tell the whole church about it. I, I mean, I know that a lot of people don't even know what they want to do really for sure when they start college. So people start at community college or they start as an undeclared major. People change their major and it's not considered to be really a big deal. Um, people change careers after age 40 all the time. So it's really unusual, I think, to people who are not IFB ever to see a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old declaring what it is that they're going to do with their life and then that kid being expected to stick to that. Yeah, that's not at all surprising because, I mean, didn't didn't Jack Scop try to get you to sign an illegal contract to go to the mission field when you were like 14 or 15? Uh, I think I was 13. 13. I'm pretty sure that was pastor school 2006. So I would have actually just in March of 2006, I would have mm. just turned 13. Uh, it could have been 2007. I think it was 2006, though. Yeah. So like it wouldn't be uncommon for even someone as young as 13 to be, quote unquote, called to preach. 
Right. Uh, a call or a calling is something that you're expected to experience as an IFB teenager. It's a coming-of-age ritual, and it's one of the most important days of your life culturally. Um, so this can happen as young as eight or nine. But I think between 13 and 17 is more typical. Uh, I want to get into the psychological process and like what that experience was like for me and what kind of the typical experience of that is. But if it's okay with you, I thought we could first back up and talk about a related subject, and that's the altar call. Okay. Okay. Yeah, let's go into that. So have you seen pictures or videos maybe of the auditorium at First Baptist Church of Hammond where there are many people kneeling around at the front of the the big stage? Um, I know the cover for one of their choir albums showed this. I'm not sure if it showed up live in any of the videos I've sent you. Yeah, so I've seen it in various videos, like the music videos uh, mm-hmm. oh, of right, like okay. choir of like performances, singing those songs, and then there'll people going down to the altar. But like the stage is massive, and there will be people singing in the choir, and then there will be people down in front of the stage, and they will be kneeling. Right, and that stage is like it looks big on video. It looks it is so intimidating in person. I think it's it's. I think I heard it's 100 yards across. I'm not sure if that's accurate. That's like the size of a football field. It is huge. That that auditorium, I am sure it must be 100 yards. It's huge. The auditorium seats 7,500. So it's big. So we could be talking about thousands of people coming forward and kneeling in some of these videos. Because people will like flood the steps all the way up to the platform. So there are like thousands of people packed in there. Hiles Anderson Chapel is another place where you might see several hundred people or even a thousand people kneeling like all in the aisles. You might see people lying face down at the front of the room. Uh, people very tightly packed together. It would again, given the fire marshal a heart attack, except for the fire marshal was in some kind of cahoots with Jack Scott, which I'm still trying to figure out the, the back end of that story. You, uh, it's red, uh, red yarn and photographs on a bulletin board <laughs> is where we're at right now, but it is quite a sight to behold. Yeah, it really is. So to understand the idea of being called to preach, like 90% of the time, somebody who gets called to preach, it happens during one of these altar calls. So I thought it might be a good idea to kind of back up and talk about the cultural practice of an altar call uh, and then get into like what a call to preach is. Okay. So the altar the altar call is something that I believe I witnessed when I watched Sheffy. But I don't really understand it entirely. So would you be willing to define that term for me? Sure. So altar calls are something that actually has its roots hundreds of years ago. So uh, in Catholic churches, we're going to talk about church architecture. Um, Okay. In Catholic churches or Episcopal or Methodist or Lutheran, you would often see a rail or something that looks like a, like a fancy fence at the front of the church, like just before the part where it raises up and that's the altar. Um, in Baptist churches or less formal churches, you wouldn't see that. But usually the raised platform at the front of the church is still referred to as an altar. So it's it's sort of like when you go up and uh, receive communion. Is that, that what rail, like we're talking about with the altar call? That air, No. The rail, that like the, the in front of the altar, that is the place where people go to receive communion. Um, you're talking about the right area of the church, but the wrong church practice. So, oh, okay. This, yeah. yeah. All of this Jesus stuff low-key <laughs> just kind of melds together for me. That's that's totally understandable. 
I mean, because it looks kind of the same. It looks like, okay, people are going up to the front of the church for some reason. I've seen this. I've seen that. Or is this the same thing? Well, no, yeah. Well, you may yeah. have seen. Um, so in Catholic churches, we don't kneel to receive communion anymore except for certain very ceremonial occasions. But you've probably seen videos of a church service where people walk up to the front and then they kneel down and they get communion. Yeah, you see it in movies and stuff. Right. An altar call takes place at the same part of the church, but it's nothing to do with taking communion. It's a completely different spiritual practice, and it's usually not done in more formal churches. Like, I've never heard of one in a Catholic church. I don't think that exists. Like, that doesn't happen in more formal churches. Altar calls happen exclusively in um, more casual, more evangelical churches. So it's like when we were watching Sheffy. Um, when we talked about Sheffy, like there was the difference between like what was like seen as like the high class church and like mm-hmm. the the low class church. Um, and Sheffy's aunt was part of like the the high class, the more like Calvinist denomination. And yeah, she was probably they wouldn't do that. Right, the aunt was probably um, Methodist or Congregationalist or Episcopalian. And then all of like the other. The ones that Sheffy was doing where he was like circuit riding and he was like going out to the people, you know, a very populist type church service, mm-hmm. they would have the altar call. Okay. So I'm, I'm okay. So, so this, this is, is starting like to a, make a little more sense. Yeah. So I'm getting like the cultural uh, implications of all this. I get what you're talking about now. Okay. And in the Sheffy homework episode, we also talked about the first and second great awakenings. Yeah. So um, just to kind of skim through that, back in the First Great Awakening, this was before the Revolutionary War, there were many American evangelists and preachers who preached fiery sermons. So this is like uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. That exactly. Jonathan Edwards, that, that's the okay. thing. Okay. We had to learn about that in U.S. history class. Okay. Well, you really should have. Like, this is actually, like, I know, you know, religion and history don't need to go hand in hand at every moment. Um, and especially like if you're if you're like me and you're growing up in Portland, right. you know, people here don't necessarily or people here, I think, are going to underestimate the influence that religion is going to have on a lot of people in other places in the country and has had throughout history just because Portland's not a particularly religious city. Right. So if you grew up here and you're in history class and they're talking about like all of this uh, religious movements and stuff, people are going to, that's going to be the part that you're going to be like, oh, that's not a big deal. I'll just skim that. That's not a big deal. But it's really hugely monumental and and, and consequential. Um, we may have to do an episode about sinners in the hands of an angry God at some point. That sermon probably affected several presidential elections. That sermon, really? that is probably the most consequential sermon that has ever been preached with the exception of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Wow. Like the most consequential sermon. Um, we'll get we'll get to that, but that sermon, Jonathan Edwards actually didn't scream and yell when he preached that sermon. Other preachers who preached to the same topics at the same time, this is kind of where screaming and yelling in sermons comes from. Although that particular preacher didn't. Uh, but this sermon, it was so effective. The way that he had written it, the and it's creepy if you read it. Um, he scared people so much that people in the audience would run from their pews and cling to the pillars of the building or cling to the rods that held up the tent because they were afraid that a literal hell was going to open, them, open up and swallow them where they stood. Wow. 
And this is one of the first times historically that we hear about people leaving their seats at the injunction of powerful preaching and feeling compelled to physically react to these spiritual and emotional feelings that they're experiencing. Historically, this was not really a thing before this time period. There may have been isolated incidents, but that this is where that, like leaving, feeling compelled to leave your seat, this is where that becomes a thing. So that first Great Awakening, uh, like just before the Revolutionary War, and then the second Great Awakening was between 1790 and 1840. And the second Great Awakening had to do with abolitionism in the North and then in the South, the big thing was salvation. And then as we saw in Sheffy, there was also a lot of anti-alcohol preaching, and this is where you see anti-vice preaching to begin with. Uh, Sheffy was a little bit later than this, but he was a circuit-riding preacher, and that's another thing that became a thing during this time in history, early 1800s. And these circuit-riding preachers would deli- would travel from place to place and deliver these highly emotional sermons. And these highly emotional sermons are the predecessors to what you would see on that Twitter account, which we do not name because we are blocked from it. Oh, that one. That yeah. one. No, like these, yeah. these sermons are the spiritual predecessors of current modern IFB screaming, yelling sermons. Okay, and so like when I've like when I watched that when I watched that movie, I was like, okay, so like you can draw a straight line to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm understanding the cultural and 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 all of these connotations now. Okay, so these sermons, like the cultural practice of it being acceptable to present these sermons in a highly emotional way, with a lot of raised voices and in a more common language. This is not a fancy sermon. You know, this is not a priest standing behind a lectern and and giving a scholarly interpretation of a verse. It's not going to be in Latin. No, it's very much the opposite of that. Yep. And these this is the kind of I'm tracing kind of the trail of how that became a thing like it is now in like the current IFB churches or in current Baptist churches. So as we move into the early 20th century, the evangelistic themes of preachers like Billy Sunday became more and more focused on vices, particularly on the prohibition of alcohol. Other than alcohol, we can see a real shift to the idea of giving up sin in general. So Billy Sunday and his contemporaries, if we're thinking like 1910, they were preaching about the evils of novels, uh, dancing, alcohol, skirts that showed ankle, that kind of thing. So just anything that was like pop culture at the time. Right. And who does that sound like? Hmm. The modern IFB. Yeah. Okay. I'm get. We're getting somewhere. Okay. Right. So, so I mentioned Billy Sunday, um, one, because he's hugely popular within the IFB, but also because this is where there's another, sh- there's another shift from people kind of feeling compelled or feeling moved to go down and pray at the altar to preachers actively encouraging people to do it. And the the activeness with which the preacher would encourage or beg people to come down to the altar, just that just increases over time. So you get you go from, you know, come and pray if you feel like God is leading leaving leading you or if you feel like God is putting it on your heart, like in Sheffy. We transition from that to preachers who kind of threaten or shout a lot in kind of tell people to come down and kneel and it it becomes more intense. And that's where we get the modern iteration 
of an altar call that you could see at just about any IFB church on just about any Sunday. So in modern times, to wrap this all up, in the IFB of the 21st century, uh, a practice that Jack Hiles was uh, a big fan of, there is always an altar call at the end of every church service. So if you're in an IFB church on a Sunday morning, the pastor preaches about reading your Bible more. And then he will end his sermon with a call to action, with a challenge to go home and read one more Bible chapter per day than you had previously been doing. And at the end of his sermon, the preacher will have the piano player or the organist play some verses of a hymn, maybe five to ten minutes. And the preacher will say, if you want to promise God to read your Bible one more chapter a day every day than what you were doing before, come and kneel at the altar. If you want to promise God to read your Bible more in general, come down and kneel. So rather than people feeling compelled, he is actively soliciting people to come pray at the altar while that music plays. There's a formalized place in the service for it. So it's like socially expected for you to do it? Like would like you would want to be seen among the righteous, so you would go down and do the altar call. So I'm sure this differs by church. The way I always perceived this practice was if you were not too old or too sick to physically be able to kneel down and get back up, you were expected to go down and pray either Sunday morning or Sunday night just about every week. It wasn't that you were kind of socially expected to do it every single service. Um, teenagers were expected to do it every single service, but, but adults, it wasn't that you had to do it every time. It was that if you weren't seen at the altar every so often, it was definitely a social faux pas. And they would, you know, keep track of who, well, like people would remember because they have like, you know, because they're all up in each other's business and they have, you know, nothing to pay attention to outside of church gossip right not like pen and paper keep track but like people know people keep an eye on you like i haven't seen you down at the altar quite as much as i should expect of somebody of your stature Mm. you know (laughs) so even the pastors would mention something like uh if you haven't come down to this altar to pray recently i'm not sure if you're right with god maybe you need to come down here and fix that Mm. so i have never attended a church where you would get called out by name so my so no no pastor that I know would have been like Mr. Jones, you have been down to this altar, and I don't think you're right with God. No, but I would be zero percent surprised if there are churches where you could get publicly called out like that. Mm. I'm sure they exist. Oh, I have no doubt that that exists. So being in the pastor's family, my family was expected to be a good example. So my mom was always expected to to bring me and my brothers and go down and pray. And when I was older, I was definitely always expected to do that. But I think it was more of a, that was a pastor's family thing. Yeah. I mean, but like, what if you weren't particularly moved by the sermon? Like, I mean, religious experiences shouldn't be predictable. So what if the pastor's sermon just wasn't very strong? Like, is it your fault that you don't feel moved to prostrate yourself at his feet? There is a great IFB answer for that. <laughs> and I am anxious to hear it. So if you didn't hear from God while the preacher was preaching, maybe that's because there's a sin between you and God. What is it that you're not confessing? Are you just rebellious? And I absolutely love that every explanation that the IFB has for everything is just like, it's your fault. 
Like you could have a bland preacher with no originality and no passion. And if you didn't feel moved by the sermon or whatever nutty thing he was asking you to do, I mean, it's like he's like a bad fitness instructor or whatever. Like it's your fault. Hmm. Yeah. The the other component of it is that um, fake it until you make it is a common phrase within the IFB. And it's usually applied to women, but it can apply to anybody. Hmm. Um, so the idea is that if God doesn't speak to you in the sermon, well, you should still demonstrate your willingness to be spoken to by going down to at the altar call. And it's also on top of that, it's still an opportunity to support your pastor and show a good example for other people and uh, that kind of BS. So basically you're doing it no matter what. You're supposed to, and they're going to play the music and ask you to go down there no matter what. The, the real issue that I ran into with altar calls in regular church services was how long they could sometimes take. Once in a while, if a preacher doesn't get the response he wants, he can totally just hold the whole church there while he yells and begs and whatever else to try to get that one person to come down there that he thinks needs to be there. I don't know if that's more sad or if that's just obnoxious. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of both. And you see this more, I think, with like teen pastor, like the youth pastor. But I've oh. seen people refuse to dismiss the service. Like uh, like God told me that five more people still need haven't surrendered and still need to come down to this altar call and like refuse to dismiss the service until those five people come down here. I mean, this just went from like bad game show host to bad comedy open mic. Like, you guys need to laugh at my jokes or else. I, <laughs> yeah, like I don't yeah. even know. I just I can just tell you like it's it's miserable to be there when this happens. Oh, of course. I mean, I, I find it ridiculous. I'll tell you. I mean, these IFB people. I mean, they tend to be more conservative, right? Politically, socially. Um, yeah. Of course. Um, but like and in my observations, a lot of very conservative people, you know, their concept of liberty isn't so much as like I am free to do as I please. But it's more of like you can't tell me what to do. And anybody who they think is telling them what to do, like no matter whether they're right or they're wrong, they're going to just say, no, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do the exact opposite of whatever you're trying to tell me. Like. And so, like, in this situation, I suppose it's sort of like herding cats. Yeah, but the thing is that if you don't listen to the preacher, that's the equivalent of not listening to God. So you can't really just be like, no, don't tell me what to do, because that's a pretty bad look to be telling that to God. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, though, if people really get into this whole altar call thing, you've got somebody down at the altar crying and repenting and everything else. You could have the same problem for the opposite reason. Like the rest of the church can be stuck there waiting while that person works out their issues. I've seen people down at the altar crying for like an hour or more at certain services. And if that happens. Hour? Yeah. Then everybody else in the church is super annoyed because we're all like sitting there hangry and we're all going to have to wait in line to get seated at the restaurant after church now. Wait, like. So you could literally be stuck in church for an hour because somebody is going through some publicly and you're just expected to stand there and wait. Yep. What? Yeah. I've seen it happen a few times where it went on so long that the pastor gave people the option to leave. I guess you can't leave until the pastor dismisses you. I mean, physically you can. It's not like they lock the doors. 
But unless you have a crying baby or some very obvious reason to call it quits before the pastor dismisses, it's a really big taboo to leave early and you're probably going to get yourself preached at in the next sermon. See, if you're me in this situation, sometimes it's you playing the piano. So you're stuck sitting up there and like, you know, Mm. you play piano for a half an hour, your back is going to start to hurt. So you're just sitting there playing the same song over and over. Um, I don't know. Maybe the song leader gets up and has people sing a few verses of something to keep it from becoming totally monotonous. And the whole congregation has to just stay there. Yeah, that's uh, that's ridiculous. Like I can imagine like if I were an absolute monster, I could ruin everybody's day by repenting for like four hours. I think the congregation is supposed to see it as like like as an honor to be present for God doing such a great work in that person's life or something like that. Or maybe that person is just a fucking narcissist who wants to be seen virtue signaling with a captive audience in the most obnoxious way possible. The whole crying and repenting thing, though, that can happen at a regular church service, but it's much more likely to happen at a revival service or uh, like a youth conference or a pastor school or something like that. Okay, so you mentioned revival service in the like in the last episode, because that's the thing that Lester Roloff was flying to when he crashed and died, um, and that's another thing that I saw that they had in in, in Sheffy when I watched Sheffy. Yeah, I I'm not going to go into super detail on the revival service for the moment because we've just recently talked about them and that needs to be an episode of its own eventually. The basics are that churches will have a guest preacher in, like Lester Roloff. And it'll be like Monday through Thursday night or Wednesday through Friday night, uh, at least three consecutive days and nights, often longer. They will have church late into the night every night for days on end. And these more modern 20th century revival services like the ones that Lester Roloff preached are the ones that my church had growing up. They are most definitely descended from the camp meetings that you saw in Sheffy. And that's why I'm so glad we watched Sheffy because so much of that is a predecessor yeah, of like modern stuff. I didn't anticipate it being that important when I assigned it, and I'm so glad I did. Yeah. The idea is that uh, with the revival services is that being immersed in church and having a preacher who is really known for having God's power behind him will inspire the church members to recommit themselves to God for like the next year until the next revival service. It's like a faith and inspiration booster shot. It's traditional for churches to have churches of a certain size that can support having a a guest preacher in. We'll typically have some kind of revival service every year. And then church members also will travel up to 50 miles or so to visit other churches' revival services. So this is something that you could do like multiple times a year. Okay. So like the revival service is like regular church, but it's stronger. So people are more likely to do the altar call. Yes. Um. I'm going to do an analogy that'll make a lot of people really mad. If church is beer, revival's like Everclear. Lots of pressure. I would think that being Southern that you would say it's like moonshine, not Everclear, but you can go on. (laughs) Speaking of Sheffy, at a revival, you will definitely get a lot of people wanting to come pray. Uh, They want to, they're going to come down there and be like, sorry for not reading their Bible enough or not praying enough or going soul winning enough. They're sorry for going to the movies or whatever and they want to promise god that they'll do better just a lot of people being really sorry for for that they shouldn't have to be sorry for really but at revival services and 
conference services like youth conference or pastor school, you're much more likely to see this slightly different phenomenon, and that is making a decision. So a lot of times the praying at an altar call is private. You don't pray out loud. You just go down to the altar and you kneel down for like two verses of a song and you might be actually praying or you might be making your grocery list and nobody really knows. Yeah. Um, not that that's personal experience at Because all. you have to be seen doing this because otherwise it's a faux pas. Right. Um, yeah. So you can totally just, I don't, I don't know, be doing random stuff. Anyway, you don't pray publicly a whole lot in the IFB. Anyway, you go down there, you do your thing, you either actually pray or you whatever for two minutes and then you go to go back to your seat. But if you made a decision, that becomes a lot more public. Okay, so what's a dis- what is making a decision? So the number one decision that you might make if you go down during an altar call would be getting saved. Um, and maybe I take some flack for saying this, uh, but I really kind of feel like the reason that you have to go in front of church and tell somebody and get your name written down and have the pastor make you stand up in front of everybody and tell them all that you got saved. I feel like that whole process is so that the church can count you as one of the people they had saved that year. Because at the end of the year, the church wants to be able to say, we collectively had 3,682 people saved this year. And they want to inflate that number as much as they can so that your pastor can brag about it to other pastors and you can look good. <laughs> I mean, this is the truth. This is, this is the truth. This is like literally you two pastors run into each other at pastor school in March. Right, and it's, hey, br- hey, brother Rick. Hey, brother Joe. How many uh, How many people did your church see saved in 2020? And then, uh, oh, my church saw 4,800 people saved. How about yours, brother Joe? Oh, my church had 4,900 people saved. Step <laughs> your it, game up. It's really like that. It's really, it's like fishing stories or golf stories or whatever. It's just with uh, this. That makes so much sense because the type of guy who's going to try to be the pastor is going to also the type of guy who's like way into the one-upmanship, very into like the macho, uh, the, the macho, like, oh, I'm the best. I'm the greatest. I'm like the strongest, the tallest, the coolest, the fattest, the yeah. eat the most burgers and, uh, highest cholesterol and never get a heart attack yeah um and and people really will there's always been you know ifb pastors who are a lot more sincere and who just um yeah they're mis they're they're misled by the system they haven't got the courage to leave yet or they haven't you know found their reasons to leave yet and there's always been pastors who don't like to participate in that kind of numbers game and i've known i've known many pastors like that um, strangely, they seem to be the pastors with like the least sexual misconduct problems at their church. I wonder why. I wonder why? Uh, you know, the least child abuse scandals at their church. Weird. Uh, the least likely to have their wife randomly leave them. Strange. Anyway, um, there are definitely pastors who don't participate in that kind of numbers game, but a lot of people do. So even if you get saved at home, Or so if you're okay, if you're an IFB family and you have little children and one of your children gets saved while listening to a patch the pirate tape, you've got to bring your kid to church the next Sunday and bring the kid down to the altar so you can report that the kid got saved. Uh, So it counts double. Supposedly they're only counting it once. But if you as the parent who led your kid, you know, who, you know, your kid got saved when they were hanging out with you, um, 
If you, the parent, count that towards your personal soul winning total and the church also counts it towards their public profession total, then it's going to get double counted even on accident, much less on purpose. Before I get in too much trouble for saying this, there is a scriptural reason that they want people to do this ritual of going down to the altar and reporting that they got saved. The Bible refers to making a public profession of of faith. It's like if you're truly saved, you won't be ashamed of saying it in public and that new Christians should also always have an opportunity to kind of stand up in public and and in front of a crowd of people just say that they got saved. So sort of like when you uh, – you know how when people like just start a keto diet and then they constantly have to tell everybody about how they just started the new keto diet and how great they feel? Also CrossFitters, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, CrossFit. Um, you know, usually I like to lump vegans in with that, but I have a vegan friend who is actually incredibly chill about it. So now I can't use that one anymore. Oh, yeah. I know. I know a, a great many that – yeah, like I feel like that's kind of phased out. I think people are really chill these days, and I like that. Yeah, the only people who like just go around making fun of vegans anymore are mouth breathers in lifted trucks. Who, yeah. Yeah, well, I think a lot of vegans have kind of like, I don't know. But it's so commonplace now. Right, like they're, they're ma- they are proving their point by making it a common and sustainable way of life. Right, it's a commonplace thing. So, like, you can't like being vegan as your personality isn't like a viable option anymore because, like, right? Yeah, half of everybody's vegan now. So, anyway, um, as far as like this public profession thing, I want you to think of it from the other perspective, though. So, you're gonna have to really go into like another universe in your mind here. But if somebody told you, "Pray this prayer, and Jesus will save you." And you take them up on this. So you actually believe that you have just been saved from hell. You'd probably be pretty excited about it. So you might like actually be pretty excited about telling, you know, being willing to tell people like, oh, yeah, I just accepted Jesus. If you actually believe this stuff. So all in all, there is actually technically a Bible reason. I think it's mostly to boost the numbers. But that's the thing about going down to the altar to get saved. The other more common decision is getting baptized. So the IFP believe that baptism has, it has no bearing on whether you go to heaven or not. And it's not a part of salvation, but also it's all but mandatory. Even though it doesn't get you more saved. Okay. It's still all but mandatory. Kind of like, it's like how wearing a wedding ring doesn't make you married or not married, but it's highly symbolic. That's how they describe it. Oh, I get you. I get you. I get you. Um, which is ironic because I haven't worn my wedding rings in like six months. <laughs> Does it, do they still fit? No. See, that's why. Not even close. No. This is where – so the baptism thing is where it gets slightly more interesting. So you can come down and pray for a minute or you can get saved or you can get baptized. But if you're not doing one of those three things, these altar calls can really have a larger or a more permanent effect on somebody's life. Like I said earlier, uh, these can cause someone to repent of a sin. And that can be juicy if, like, if somebody decides to confess what their sin is about. Mm. Like, you don't have to. But sometimes people will get so guilty that they'll make, they'll do a confession, which is juicy. Um, So they'll tell on themselves, oh, man. Yeah. Like, it could be something as mild as, like, I don't know, like mental infidelity or social drinking or renting a PG-13 movie. But that's some pretty serious tea to spill in front of the church. Okay. I want to back up real quick. 
Okay, okay. Because you just, you said mental infidelity. Oh, yeah, like massive sin, dude. So is mental infidelity like emotionally cheating on somebody? Yeah, like it could totally be like, I don't know, sexting somebody who's not your spouse. Mm. Um, but it oh, that's could... definitely cheating. That's not allowed. Well, that's that's something you shouldn't do. That's absolutely something that you shouldn't do. But it also could be that you thought about cheating. Like, or that thought you about it. thought about it or fantasized about it or like watched porn. A lot of times mental infidelity is code for porn. Or when you see the nice woman at the checkout counter of the grocery store and you think, I bet she looks good naked. Oh, yeah. So actually, dude, that's technically committing adultery. Really? Yeah, because Jesus said if you look on a woman in order to lust after her, then you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. So what the IFB take that to mean is that it is just as much of a sin as if you actually did have sex with that person. Damn. Yeah. Well, if that's adultery, then I must be the biggest player in Portland. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> yeah, uh, you you need Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my name is Gavriel Ha Cohen, and I am the real Mac Daddy of Multnomah County. Okay. You heard it here. Number one, can that be my new cell phone ringtone? If you ever call, yeah, me? I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. Thank you. Um, number two, we should okay, we should make that a, a ringtone for our Patreon subscribers. Yeah. Number two, speaking Who of... Who still uses ringtones? I thought that I people watched don't. R. Kelly Trapped... No, people watched R. Kelly Trapped in the Closet and they're like, you know what? Bad things can happen if you don't have your phone, uh, your phone set to vibrate. I don't know. I mostly have my phone turned off, but I feel like I would start using ringtones again to make that your ringtone for like the one time in every couple months that you actually call me. Okay. Anyway... The other way that this can go, if you're not making a big confession of mental infidelity in front of the church, the other way that this could happen is somebody might surrender their life to God. And that is the other big thing that I wanted to get to in this particular episode. Okay, so we are going to take a short break. We're going to take up the offering. And then when we return, we will talk all about what it means to surrender your life to God. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Gavriel here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. That's facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. 
You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leavingedenpodcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden Podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. All right, we are back back and we are here to talk about being called to preach and what it means to surrender your life to God. Defining a call to preach or a call to the ministry in general. I think this this definition is really difficult. For 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 one thing, I think a lot of people feel calls to different things in life where they feel like they have a calling. I think ministers of all faiths should feel like they have a calling for sure. But also I think, you know, I don't know, maybe your dad feels called to be a doctor, not in a religious sense or not that God told him to do it, but that he feels like helping people in that way is the correct path for him. And it's something that brings him fulfillment. Yeah. I don't like, I don't know about that. Like for me, because it's different for everybody, right? Like right. for me, I remember at a very young age, one of my earliest memories, probably my earliest memory is being in the back of my parents' car. We were driving to the beach. I must have been like three years old. We were listening to the Beatles. And I thought like, oh, I want to do that. You know, I want to play the music. So I understand what it means to feel the calling. That's very much what I was trying yeah. to say. Yeah. I feel that a lot of people feel that in some way, religious or not, that they are called to something in life. Um, my husband, for example, he works in a field that directly helps people and he works for a nonprofit company. And I know that those two components are very important to his job satisfaction. He doesn't feel like he'd be satisfied in a job where he didn't directly help other people. And that's a calling. But what the IFB is talking about, of course, is being called by God and being called specifically and only into full-time Christian ministry within the IFB. I've never heard of anyone who said that they weren't called to be a pastor, that they just chose to be a pastor within the IFB. I don't recall whether I've ever heard a sermon that said, you must be called by God in order to be qualified. That detail escapes me. Whether they believe that you actually have to be called to be qualified to be a pastor, I, I'm sure I don't remember anyone who didn't claim to be called by God who was a pastor. And a calling in the IFB sense is it's much more dramatic and it's much more of a specific moment in time than it is the non-religious sense that we were talking about before. So within the IFB, your calling is a date and time. So in the IFB world, you would say something like, I was saved on March 16th, 2001, and then I was baptized on March 22nd, 2001, and then I was called to preach on October 10th, 2008. So if you're an IFB pastor, you're called to preach. It's a big part of your origin story. So when you get called to preach, you'll want the events or the sermons surrounding it to be monumental because this is a story that you're going to have to tell again and again. Right. And this applies just the same to being called to be a missionary or being called to anything else. Um, but even if you're a girl and you're called to be a pastor's wife or a missionary's wife, that still applies to you to know the date and the time. 
So I think it's very strange that you can be called to be married to somebody who does a specific job. I mean, I I could say that I am called to be married to gold medal winning U.S. Olympic gymnast Allie Raisman and to be stepdad to her dog and her plants. But that doesn't mean that's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I wish you best of luck. I wish me best of luck to Allie Raisman. If you're listening to this, I love you and I will marry you if you want me to. Here's the thing. If you are a woman, whoever you get married to, that's your calling anyway. So they, they would say that I'm called to be my husband's wife. Like I'm called to be the mother of his kid. That's not that, that it's not like it's something that I chose. It's something that like God, God told me to do. So if you're called to be a missionary wife, then that's just God giving you the heads up on what kind of dude to look for. I think that it's good to know that God is like trying to hook me up. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, but like, that's a thing for you guys. You know, you're like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm being caught. Like God is like, has somebody picked out for me. Like, that's a thing. Right. And and does that make sense, though, how that would tie into purity culture, by the way? Yes. If God has oh, somebody wow. picked out for you that he's going to call you to be married to, uh, then if you like, I don't know, if you hold hands with somebody else or premaritally kiss somebody else, then you've messed up your calling. So the first factor in being called is a time of resistance. And I have to speak here from what I felt personally, and then you should feel free to psychoanalyze this whole mess. But I'm, I'm really going to talk more about my personal experience, and I think it's very similar to what other people experienced as well. So before you surrender to the call, so maybe days or months or even years before, you start to feel something very similar to guilt. So like what but you so you feel like what do you feel guilty for though? So it's a feeling that's similar to so is it related to like I feel like I need to be giving more to God, giving it all, like giving my whole life to God? I think Yes, like feeling guilty because you're not doing enough is part of it. What this felt like for me was, so I would feel a desire to do what I wanted to do, or I would feel a reluctance to do what I thought I was being called to do. And then on top of that, I would feel guilt about desiring my own way or guilt about that reluctance. So here's the example. I don't recall ever professing that I was being called to be in any specific ministry position, but I did profess that God was calling me to be a full-time ministry worker. So I thought that God wanted me to be married to somebody who was in full-time ministry, someone like a pastor or a missionary or something. And I believed that God was calling me to also serve in the church where my husband served. Now I knew from growing up in a pastor's home that choosing this path for my life or surrendering to God's calling, depending on how you want to phrase it, would mean that I would be doing many hours of unpaid work while my husband was probably paid below minimum wage. I knew that this meant that I would have to shop at Goodwill for the rest of my life. I knew that I would have to coupon and plan carefully and shop at Costco to be able to feed my family. I knew that the rest of my life, if I surrendered to this calling, would almost certainly be a life of poverty, pain, no health care, never having a nice house or having a nice car. So I didn't want to surrender to that because I wanted to live a normal life and I wanted to not have to deal with those hardships. 
Like I wanted to go to college and maybe just marry somebody like, I don't know, the architect or something and like go to church and have Do money. anything else with your life. Yeah. Anything else. But then I felt painfully, terribly guilty because I didn't love God enough to dedicate my life to promise to live that way for the rest of my life. So a life serving the Lord is a life of poverty. It's a life of humility. It's a life of difficulty. And this isn't what you wanted. But there was, was, was there something that was calling you to pursue this? So I don't know how the factors that led to feeling such a strong sense of being called worked. But I think I can describe several of the factors and maybe we can kind of parse it together from that. Uh, I think one of the first things is that it, it a lot of it is composed of just basic compassion for other people. So I'm sure that growing up in Portland, you probably saw a lot of homeless people. You heard about people who have addictions. Uh, you heard about poor people who didn't have proper food, people who didn't have health care. Like this is something that you would have been aware of by the time you were between the ages of, I don't know, 12 and 16. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. I mean, the homeless, situ- the homeless situation in Portland is unconscionable. It absolutely is. Yeah. And I'm sure that as a child or as a teenager, you saw these social issues and you felt compassion for these people. Like, just like me as you know, a child driving, if I, if I drove past and saw a homeless camp on the side of the road, I would have felt empathy for people who went through things like that. And I'm sure that you felt that same sense of feeling sorry for people and and wanting their lives to not be that way. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Were you presented, if you asked your parents about why are some people homeless or why are some people struggling with addiction, did they present you with a solution? Like, did someone tell you like, oh, yes, that's why we donate to food banks or like, that's why we vote for healthcare reform? Oh, absolutely. Like, Sadaka is 100% like a Jewish value. Is that like empathy? No, Sadaka is like, is like you know, given to charity, trying to... Okay. So you were presented with the solution, which is those of us which are more fortunate contribute to caring for people who are less fortunate. Like that's the solution yeah. that you were that you were presented with as a kid. Okay, I was presented with a solution to all these social ills as well. But the solution that I was presented with was become a pastor, become a pastor's wife or become a missionary and lead these people to Jesus because Jesus is the only answer. So you might have been encouraged to donate to a food bank or volunteer at a shelter. I was encouraged to give up the idea of eating well myself for the rest of my life in order to work for next to nothing at an IFB church so that I could try to help those people get saved. Mm. I was um, I was shown images of starving children in other countries. But instead of asking for a donation to help feed those children, the solution that I was presented with was, you need to go to Hiles Anderson, you need to become a missionary wife, you need to give up the rest of your life in for this, you will never retire or you will retire when you can't walk anymore. You will see your parents and your family once every five years, you will birth your children in unsafe conditions in another country. You will never have a luxury again for the rest of your life in order to be a missionary to make sure that those children are saved so that they go to heaven when they die of starvation. 
Yeah. Oh, see. So this is this is something that has been incredibly confusing to me because as we both know, and this is backed up by data, people who are extremely religious tend to be more charitable. They tend to put more effort into works that care for the poor, the needy, the disadvantaged. Yet people who are extremely religious also tend to be very politically conservative and to be against a lot of social welfare programs. And that was always confusing to me because, you know, when it comes like to saying like, well, why aren't you supporting providing guaranteed health care or why aren't you supporting expanded food benefits? The answer is always like, well, that's the job of God. That's the job of the church. That's not the job of the government. And these people aren't being provided for because they aren't involved with God. Because the church provides these things to people, God provides these things to people, and they aren't involved with that, so that's why they're not okay. That makes so much sense. Hell, Ugh, that makes way more sense now, right? And of course, that's not the only factor for why people who are religious tend to be against social welfare, welfare programs, but that is absolutely one large factor, yeah. So, like, devoting your life to the ministry is seen as doing the same amount of like tangible good as being a doctor or being a social worker or serving your country in like the armed forces. Oh, it's seen as a large step above those things. Uh, you do more tangible good by being in the ministry. So that's what they're that's what they're telling you. Yes. And mm. you as an IFB young person would be seen as extremely selfish if you chose not to go in the ministry. So here's another, that's a kind of another factor. It would be almost considered shameful if you said you wanted to be a doctor. I mean, it would be a shame on your family. Yeah, you that's you, like the exact opposite. Like, man, <laughs> if you're Jewish, you're like, oh, I'm going to go to medical school. The parents are like, you know, Throwing telling all their friends, be like, oh, <laughs> like my son, he just decided that he's going to be applying to medical school. But then you have the IFB parent who's like, no, my son is going to Hiles Anderson College. <laughs> no, uh, if you said you uh, wanted to be a doctor, like that would be perceived as shameful because that means that's that so bonkers to me. <laughs> that's like, ugh. because that would mean that like everybody Jewish listening to this is just like, what the f like that's f***ed up, man. No, like, know, you're, like, <laughs> like in that culture, though. The only reason that you would want to be a doctor or that you would choose to be a doctor over being a missionary is because you want money and money is seen in the IFB as dirty as Unless like your Jack Hiles. Well, and then you can he be as rich as you people. want. He used it to help mm. people. You know, he only made $18,000 a year his entire life. On paper. Right. <laughs> But he somehow had all money that to tells me is that he was like majorly involved in tax evasion. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, he somehow had money to buy fur coats for Mrs. Nischik. Mm. Uh, you know, on eighteen k a year, sure. One coat is going to be worth eighteen k. I know, but so so in the IFB though, young people who had talent 
if you had scholarships for anything from sports to academics or whatever, you were seen as a hero when you turned away from the potential of a lucrative career in order to go into the ministry. I mean, I'm sure that there must have been like massive social pressure on these young people to pursue like that life path. Like, so devoting your life to God, like that's just seen as the right thing to do no matter what. It was the only socially acceptable career path for children who were raised within the IFB. What we were told and here, so here's another factor that goes towards the being called to preach or like why you would actually feel like you were being legitimately called. We were told that somebody has to be a doctor and somebody has to be a mechanic and somebody has to work at the grocery store. But God put you in this church, and it's your responsibility to be thankful and to grow up to be in the ministry. You should grow up and be a preacher, and then you can witness to the doctors and the mechanics and the grocery store workers, and they can all tithe to your church. I don't know. I don't think I know anybody who was raised IFB that didn't make some kind of profession of being called to the ministry by the time they were 16 or so. Whether they meant it or not, that's not for me to know. But I don't think I've ever met somebody who didn't make some kind of profession of this by the time they were a teenager. So if I was raised in the IFB, there is almost a 100% chance that I would be called to preach. Yes. So you as a male, you could, uh, if you wanted to be a little more creative, you could get called to be a missionary or an assistant pastor or a Christian school administrator. But there is almost a 100% chance you'd get called into the ministry because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, oh, and, and a call to preach can be separate. So if you're a man, you can actually get called twice because you can get called to preach, which just means anything within the ministry. Uh, and then you can get like the next year you might get called to be a pastor or to be an evangelist or to be a missionary or whatever, mm. um, which is just one way that, that men get more choices and more praise. Um, another factor, though, is the praise that you receive when you conform to this expectation Okay, so I think you mentioned it when we were talking about life verses. The one that, you, like, once you selected your life verse and you openly stated, like, your commitment, you were seen as a mature adult within your community. Yes, that is where I talked about this before. Yeah, Thank when you. we were talking about wondering. life verses. Yeah. So uh, I want to talk about kind of the cycle or, like, the timeline of how this would happen. Um. So in the summer, the teenagers, we all went to youth conference. And then about two weeks later, we went to summer camp. And both of these events would feature really intense preaching. And the themes were usually about the things that I've already been mentioning, uh, how we're we're privileged to be growing up in church. And it's our responsibility to save America and save the world. If we don't save America, there won't be any freedom in the future. And it'll be a communist country and it'll be our fault. Uh, basically everything comes down to our generation and how much we dedicate ourselves to God. I mean, that's an incredibly large burden to put on the shoulders of teenagers, especially when the teenagers have so little institutional power. Yeah. Um, there's a reason a lot of us are really fucked up psychologically. <laughs> there really is. Um, all of this, so at both camp and youth conference, this would be presented in this very intense manner. So I've mentioned Scop using very graphic images in his sermon, America, America. And there are many other examples of similar things happening. I know that normal kids in your and my generation and maybe a few years older than us um, 
would go on like certain websites back when the internet was a little bit more of a wild west and you could see decapitations or people's limbs oh shock sites off. yeah i mean this is something that like, was a thing that either was, that or it'd just be like a, a, a meatspin.com this was apparently like a real thing so people our age though watched super messed up videos on the internet and that was like a f- thing that people our age did for fun right yeah so i didn't have to go on the internet to see that kind of content as a kid because i might see it at youth conference in Jack Scott's sermon. Or if it wasn't the kind of situation where they were playing the video, it would be really common for a preacher to give a blow-by-blow, like a very graphic, detailed description of such a video. But it was shown to us as like, this is a Christian getting decapitated for his faith in Saudi Arabia. And like, I have no idea if this was actually a Christian getting decapitated for his faith in Saudi Arabia. I just know that it was like, you know, some dudes in militia outfits cutting a dude's head off. But so I don't know if it was true, but we would be told things like that. And we would be either shown graphic videos or, or told, talked about in, in them in great detail. Um, these sermons, so there's a lot of yelling. Preachers will leave the pulpit and go get literally six inches away from the nose of the teenager in the front row. Um, getting spit on was a really common thing to have happen to you during these sermons. Um, just berate us, call us names, use language that would otherwise be unacceptable, and generally just scare the hell out of us. Um, a sermon in one of these camps or conferences could go on for upwards of two hours at times. And at youth conference, there were days that we would be in sessions from nine in the morning until nine at night. So I like last week when we were talking about Lester Roloff. I brought up the movie a, like A Clockwork Orange. And specifically, there's this one scene in the movie where they're trying to give one character like aversion therapy to try and like he, he agrees to do aversion therapy instead of like going to jail or something for his antisocial behavior. And they literally like tape his eyes open or they, they tape his eyes open and then, then make him watch all of this violence on a screen and like this is the same thing as that where like uh, that's uh, that's so wild and then they're gonna like play all this inspirational music at the end of that and then pressure you into signing illegal contracts and agreeing to spend years of your life in the mission field right so after going through an ordeal like that i think so okay so you so you go through a sermon like that you're three days into three hours of sleep a night. You're hopped up on caffeine. Uh, you haven't had a proper hot meal in a couple days. And everybody else is is falling to their knees and going to the front and weeping. And the lyrics of the song that they're playing are little, it's like, quote, this is an actual IFB song quote. Little children are falling into a burning hell. That's a terrible song. That's an actual IFB song lyric. So Ew. it's amazing that like it, it it's amazing how fast like that kind of pressure situation will make you run out of your seat and run to the altar and get on your knees and cry and repent of your sins. Like of course you are. It's a I mean, fucking traumatic experience. Yeah, I mean like what I'm there it's not so much a call to preach like as it was like a message of preach or else and if you don't succumb we will intentionally traumatize you until you do. I mean, it's just psychological torture, pure and simple. 
Yep. So when people have who have been through this kind of thing, when we say we have PTSD, this is kind of what we're talking about. Um, Like, imagine this being your social life throughout your teenage years and also the defining moments of your teenage existence. Uh, Learning to be a regular person after this, it's way harder than, you know, learning to shop for jeans and not have a panic attack when you leave the house in pants for the first time. Like, that's the easy part. The, The hard part is undoing years of what possibly might count as actual torture. And every time I hear another part of your story, I am absolutely thrilled and thankful that you have made such a profound recovery that you have reached the point where you're able to maintain stable relationships with the people in your life because these abuses are so incredibly sinister And there are so many people who I am sure have not been as fortunate as you. I think that might be, this is my opinion, but I think that's one reason people stay in the IFB as adults. I think all of us are damaged. Uh, Some of us are more damaged and some of us are less damaged. Um, And there's no, you know, shame in being where you are on that spectrum. But I think some people are so twisted mentally by this that they cannot even consider recovery. I think they wouldn't allow themselves to question because they instinctively know how much damage they would have to work to undo if they started to dismantle those mental systems that had been forced upon them and brainwashed into them for their entire life. So when I say that it would have been easier for me to just stay in the IFB, that concept, that's what I am referencing. And I think that part of the point of this indoctrination and these brainwashing tactics Part of this is that they intentionally try to make emotionally scarred, damaged people who are incapable of functioning outside of this very specific environment without a lot of grueling and time-consuming work. And every single day, we get messages from people. Sadie and I get messages from people whose story is just the same as, as hers And who have dealt with so much in their own personal journeys. And so to those people, like, if this is hitting home for you, we see you. Like, you're the people who we're talking to right now. I was just going to say something something similar. I appreciate the respect that I feel from you when we talk about the work that I've done towards recovery. And I feel honored that you see and recognize that work. But I don't want to let that go by without sharing that honor with those of our listeners who are doing that work alongside me yeah keep going you guys like you're on the right path it it, it's tough but it gets easier right this is this is worthwhile it's worthwhile work um but i do i just want to recognize that you know i'm not the only one (laughs) i'm not uh i'm not special i'm just uh i'm just a person who is able to talk about it a lot of people um, for very understandable reasons, can't really get into th- this kind of experience in a public uh, public way. No. But I wanted to go back to the praise part because this is there's like another factor that we need to talk about on on why you might feel that calling that I was talking about. So I think my church was pretty typical. What we would do is when you got home from the youth conference or the camp or whatever, anybody that made a decision would go stand in a line and we would all walk across the platform one person at a time. And then we would get to tell the church what we had decided. 
So like you were saying earlier, you're publicly having to commit to what you've promised, like what you said at the conference or the camp you've just come from or whatever. Um, so you're on the high. So you're when, when you're at that event, you're on this major high of, you know, probably, I don't know, some kind of endorphins or brain chemicals that come from being tortured, probably. But you're on this high and you like make this decision. But when you come back to the church, you still have to like say you're like sober now. So going in front of the church and getting the praise of people is like it's like a a booster shot for the high that you were on at the conference. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. So like you can you can say, oh, I made a decision and then saying it in front of all those people makes it real. Yes, it solidifies the decision you made. And now if you go back on it, they're like, oh, you can't go back on it. Yes. So as a side note, this is one of the only times a woman or girl is allowed to speak from the pulpit. It's very rare to be allowed to speak in church if you're a woman. So exceptions would be maybe speaking at a funeral or being in a church play. Uh, But that's beside the point. If you talk in front of the church about what it was decided at the conference and everybody will clap for you and make a big deal out of you. Um, sometimes people might even give you gifts. I think at one point my church gave a new Bible to boys who got called to preach. So the bigger thing that you're called to do or the more dramatically you drag out the story of like how hard you resisted and how much the devil fought you, uh, the more people clap for you. It's like a 15 minutes of fame thing. Oh, but it is also a little bit like a bar mitzvah. And that yeah. like, you know, people are going to appreciate it you, you, like you afterwards and then you don't get like a party with dancing, but like you, you know. Uh, yeah, but it is like it is a, a legitimate coming of age ritual. The thing is, though, you get to renew it every year. So if last year you got called to be a missionary, this year you can go back up there and say that the devil was fighting you really, really hard. You really wanted to run away from your calling, but now you're rededicating yourself to be a missionary. You're, oh, you can just milk it? Right. You can just milk it every single year. Oh. So like, so you can start this out. Like, so say you start this out. What what age? Like 14, 15? I think the most common age would be 14 or 15. Like the- So you could do 14, 15 and then do it again Every you could even do it like every eight months or so, you know, every eight months, you know, be right. like, every okay, time let me get it. Like every time there's a pastor school or a youth conference or you go someplace out of state for a team conference. Are um, people going to notice, though? Are people going to be like, oh, he did that like three months ago? He, no, like, because the devil is always fighting you if you're trying to do this stuff. Oh, my God. So, like, man. of course, the devil's always tempting you to give up. So if you're just like, oh, man, I can't wait until I get to be a pastor and everyone's paying attention. Like, you can get up there and get people to pay attention to you and just be like, oh, I can't wait until I get to be a pastor. Like, you get addicted to the attention. Right. So, mm, but also. That's just going to redouble your your commitment. Exactly. Mm. No, I think the most common age to kind of start this cycle would be 14 or 15. Um it's not at all uncommon for that initial like vague I'm called to be in the ministry without picking like missionary, pastor, evangelist, school teacher, whatever. But like the vague like, oh, I'm definitely going to be in the ministry somehow. I, that can happen at like 12 or 13 or even younger. Most people will have completed the step of like the vague like called to the ministry or called to full time Christian service. So most people would get that less specific like oh i'm called to the ministry i'm called to full-time christian service which means like 
you're giving up a career, you are committing to working for a church in some capacity. Most people would get that between 12 and 14, 12 and 15-ish, and then most people would get a call to something specific, like missionary, pastor, teacher, whatever, between the ages of like 14 and 16. So if it changes, like if you're called to be a preacher at 14, but then at 16, all of a sudden God wants you to be a missionary, there's a fix for that. So you just get up there and say that when you were 14, God was testing you to see if you were surrendered. And now that he sees that you're truly dedicated, he's revealing your actual calling now. So your other option is, if you aren't called to anything new that year, you can also go in front of the church and confess a sin. I don't know, maybe you get a CD of rock music to break in front of the church for like a dramatic effect. Confessing a sin, that that really takes balls though. Like that's for the, the bold people so i gotta like i have to wonder what is the most popular cd of rock music to break so hypothetically it's whatever you were listening to that you weren't supposed to be listening to yeah but like you're just making this up you're just like making up a sin to confess and this is like a right i feel like sometimes people maybe make it up and they just like I don't know, they buy something at a gas station or whatever. But yeah. it could be any, like Beyonce to Guns N' Roses to uh, don't, I don't break know. a Beyonce CD, the Beehive will get you. I was going to say, don't break a Guns N' Roses CD. But I mean, it could also just be like instrumental selections from the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> I mean, if you're a strict IFB, it could be a Christian rock CD. So you might be breaking a Striper CD. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, most IFBs are anti Christian rock. I think it has double the demons because Satan's convinced you that it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, uh, apart from this massive underlying pressure that is pervasive throughout your whole community, there is something else that I wanted to bring up. So, when we did our homework a few weeks ago and talked about the movie Sheffy, at the start of the film, the main character, Robert Sheffy, does not like speaking in front of crowds and does not know a lot about God or religion. But people keep telling him that he should be a preacher. Despite him being wholly unqualified, not particularly well suited to the job, and you mentioned that this is like a real thing, that somebody could just tell you, God put it on my heart that you should be a preacher, and that is as good as a calling from God himself. That somebody, Like literally anybody telling you this is like absolutely a valid quote-unquote call to preach. Yes. So you wouldn't be 100% obligated to consider that a call to preach if, if it was just one person, unless that one person was like a famous preacher or something. So if Jack Hiles walked up to you and said, you're called to preach, then you're called to preach. Done deal. Too bad. You're called to preach. No options. That's it. Yeah. Uh, If you run from that, you're, 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 you're absolutely going to hell. Yeah. If it was just one non-famous person, you might get away with not considering that a call. But in Sheffy's case, I think several people were telling him that he should be a preacher. And at that point, yes, you were obligated to pray about it and consider if you're actually getting called to preach. And if several people are telling you that you are called to preach, there is a very real expectation that you will eventually pray about it and come to the conclusion that, yes, you are indeed called to preach. 
But literally anybody could say that for whatever arbitrary or ulterior motive that they might have. And this is I, this is one of those things that to me is absolutely mind bendingly bizarre about a group like this, that it is so decentralized. I mean, like, a, so a while back, we were talking about like either Monster Energy or Phantom of the Opera. So I can't remember. Um, there's this concept that almost any preacher can sort of arbitrarily decide that something is satanic. And if they have strong enough connections and their sermon is fiery enough, then it is banned for everybody. And it's the same sort of thing. Like literally anybody can say, God put it on my heart that you are going to be a great preacher and you are going to save multitudes of people. And now that's your life. Like, it doesn't matter if you wanted to be a teacher instead, like you wanted a quiet life. You're going to be a preacher now because I guess that's what God wants from you. Yes. Okay. Yes. But also being a preacher is what God wants from pretty much everybody. I mean, what do you think you could possibly do anything more worthwhile than with your life than be a preacher? But like if everyone's a preacher, who's going to grow the food? Not everybody can be a preacher. No. Remember, that's for people who weren't raised in the IFB. If somebody has to go out of their way to tell you that God wanted you to be a preacher, it's because you were being selfish and rebellious and not listening to God. Because remember, you like if you were raised IFB, then it's your duty to become uh, be in the ministry. Remember, because people who weren't raised IFB, those are the people that you're going to go like witness to them. And they're going to get saved and then they'll be your church members. And then their kids will be. And then the their kids preachers. will be. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but then if you can if you convert the whole world, then everybody's kids are going to be preachers and nobody's going to be like. Have we converted the whole world yet? No. Better go run down while the altar call is still open and repent of your bad attitude. Yeah, also, while we're on the topic, if you don't go down right now while the altar is open, if you decide to drive home instead, uh, I'm just going to let you know that God is probably going to make you get in a car wreck and die as punishment for your selfishness. Um, so you still get to go to heaven because once saved, always saved. But you're going to spend eternity in heaven knowing that your family died because you disobeyed God. Um, you're also going to have to look Jesus in the eye and tell him that he had to take you to heaven early because you didn't want to be a preacher because you're selfish. And then he's going to tell you how many people went to hell because you didn't preach to them. And then you're going to walk around heaven forever and ever and ever with blood dripping from your hands. Is that what you want? God, I hope I didn't like trigger everybody with that last little bit. Sorry, that was one of those. I mean, you had the conviction and you like you were you. OK, you know what? You sounded like you had said that before. That's the thing. No, I've just had it said to me a lot. Wow. Um, by by a lot of people. Yeah. If you ever said that to her <laughs> and we know. So, no, we know some of you guys are listening. If you're the type yeah. of person who says that thing to other people like each die i don't give a f uh, get a life i hope you step on a lego every morning when you wake up or i hope you step on an upturned plug i don't know uh change literally everything about your personality then you need to reevaluate your life and just yeah i can absolutely tell that brainwashing must be central to the ifb upbringing because if somebody said that to me 
my response would be a loud, proud, fuck off, you absolute goniff. So I think I think the lesson in this, though, to to turn it to something more positive, I think the lesson is that there is something I've learned since I got out of the cult is that there's no such thing as forced consent or coerced consent. Uh, and this is something that we apply to sexual interactions, like sexual consent. The concept of enthusiastic consent is the only true consent. If somebody is saying, well, I don't know, maybe, or if somebody's being pressured into doing something sexually that they have not actually consented and that that should be treated as a no, not as a yes. Um, and that's something that, that everybody should know. But the truth is that this applies to areas that are not sexual consent related. If this kind of pressure is applied to someone, if they are asked to make a decision while underage without proper sleep or food or time to think, if someone was coerced and convinced and begged and told half-truths to, then the decision that they made counts for precisely nothing. These are not techniques that you use on someone that you love or someone that you care about. These are not techniques that an ethical person uses at all. And these are not techniques that a person who claims to speak for God or claims to be talking about God's will should use at all, ever. And if these techniques were used on you, like they were used on me, and if you still feel those twinges of guilt, like I sometimes still do, I just want you to know that no matter how called you felt, if you were really called to do something, it would not have come with pain or guilt. You do not have to feel guilty about something that you thought you were called to do when you were a teenager under severe psychological duress and massively inappropriate social pressure. I mentioned earlier that my husband feels like he is called to certain types of jobs. Even in the last few years, he has consciously chosen a job where he makes less than he could at another job because he feels like he is truly meant to work for nonprofit companies and truly meant to work in a sector where he directly helps the needy. I can tell you for sure that nobody pressured him as a teenager to choose this. No one has ever pressured him to choose this. His decision is not motivated by fear or guilt or shame. And that's what a real calling looks like. I fully understand that it takes time and work to let this kind of negative messaging go. And I fully understand that me saying that you don't have to listen to it is not going to just uh, change your life by tomorrow and everything's going to be better. But for those of you who share my experience, I wanted to say that when you're able, you can let this go. You do not have to live in this kind of fear and shame. And you do not have to let a, something that you thought was a calling 10 years or 15 years ago hang over your head. You, you can understand that there was no consent there, that you were treated wrongly and inappropriately, and that that if you thought that you were called to something then, that is not something that you need to feel responsible for now. All you need to feel responsible for is is being a good person and doing what you can now. I remember in the first episode of this show, you said that there were a total of, what, four available paths for your life. So you could be a pastor's wife, an assistant pastor's wife, a missionary, or a Christian school teacher. And that everything was laid out in front of you. And we've talked at length about the various reasons why people stay in the cult and how many cases, despite the abuse, the lack of freedom, 
staying in is the easy choice because the way in which this cult functions, they seek to wound, they seek to damage, they seek to indoctrinate, and for lack of a better word, they seek to disable their members to the point to the point where the only way in which they are capable of functioning as human beings is as a member of this cult. So to the people who have made the difficult decision, the brave decision to leave, to decide for themselves what they want for themselves, maybe it will be difficult to know what it is that you want to do with your life because you don't have a community of people surrounding you who are constantly pushing you in a direction and they're deeply invested in the decision that you make. And I want you to know that while you may feel like you're stuck with option paralysis right now, you may not know where your life will lead you and that's maybe scary. Maybe that fact's scary. Maybe I can offer some words of solace. Um, and I just want to say this, that nobody is watching. Nobody is paying attention. And you are living in obscurity. So whatever it is that you decide you want to do with your life, the only people who will be affected by this are the people who it directly involves. If you try and fail like four times to build a life for yourself on your own terms, and then the fifth time you succeed, nobody's going to remember your first four attempts, and nobody's going to be paying attention while you make them. Once you succeed, nobody will remember your failures. These failures are not going to be God telling you that you made a wrong decision. These failures are not a sign that you shouldn't have left. I mean, the world is is yours, your life is yours, and nobody is allowed to dictate what that means to you. I really, I really love that. I think that growing up in a in a cult of any kind, you're kind of conditioned to think that everybody is watching you all the time. And uh, I think I've found so I've been out of out of the IFB for what six years, five or six years now. Um, there, there are about two people who I still, every once in a while, I wonder, huh, I wonder what those people think about what I'm up to now. And it's not a painful thought anymore. It's not a worry of like, oh, I, I know they're judging me and I, I know they're saying these negative things about me. It's not even really that anymore. It's more funny or, or ironic now. It's more like, huh, yeah, I just posted that on Facebook. I wonder what they thought about that. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah it's like I, I don't worry about being judged anymore like I, I really don't uh, and it took a very long time and for other people it'll take longer than it took me um, but yeah you you get to you get to you get to do your own thing when you when you mess something up it's not a sign it's just a sign it, it's not a sign that God is telling you to do the other thing or that you should never have left it's a sign that you're being a human person. That's all it is. Not knowing what you want to do with yourself, I mean, that's as normal as can be. Everybody experiences yeah. that, and you experience it a little bit extra hard if you've ever left a cult. It's yeah. fine. I mean, hey, that just I'm means like, you're a normal millennial. None of us know what we're doing. 
No, I'm like two years short of 30 and I've already like I'm I've already lost my college education, moved past that, and now I'm in online college and I'm gonna have a real degree. So it you'll be fine. You'll figure it out. Yeah. We believe in you. We do believe in you. And on that note, it is time to end this episode of the Leaving Eden podcast. Um we will be back next week on Monday. We're not doing homework episodes for the time being, but on Monday we will be back and you can hear us talk about something else. Uh, and we are deeply excited for that. And we hope that you will tune in. My name is Gavriel Hako and you can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at leaving Eden podcast on Twitter. It is at leaving Eden pod also on TikTok, It's leaving Eden podcast. If you have questions for us, if you have ideas, if you have things that you want us to talk about, you can send us an email email to yeah, an email to leaving Eden pod at gmail.com. Sadie, would you like to plug your social media? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music or on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie. Yes, yes, yes. And my name is Gabriel Hako, and you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. And if you want to download the song that is playing right now, you can find that on my page on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you download, wherever you stream music, it is available there. And until next time, we hope that you guys have a nice day. Bye-bye. But old rolling river of time Healed me in too many days No regrets, no Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.